Passing Dimes is proud to welcome a new partner to the show, Momentum Pro Camps. Momentum Pro Camps runs volleyball camps across Ontario, bringing professional athletes, coaches, and resources to communities, clubs, and partners. Momentum's mission is to inspire and develop high performers for life, and they're doing just that. Unfortunately, because of the COVID-19 pandemic, Momentum has suspended all programming until permitted by local public health recommendations. However, they have developed incredible future programming for athletes to benefit from and are excited to share it with all of you when we can play again. Follow us on social media at Momentum Pro Camps for updates and details on future programs or email us at contact at MomentumProCamps.com. Stay excellent, friends. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Passing Dimes. You know, this this is the reason you start a podcast, is just to nerd out with some fellow volleyball coaches, and we're really going to get into it. So today's guest is a five-year assistant at the University of Manitoba, where he's a two-time CIS bronze medalist. He's also been a part of the Bison's Volleyball Club, where he's a two-time national champion. He's been a part of Team Canada with the youth national team, and he's currently the club director of Club 204 in the Winnipeg area. Please welcome to the show, Jared Brown. Jared, thanks for doing this, man. Yeah, you bet, Josh. I'm really excited to just chat volleyball with you. So you and I kind of got connected by a friend of the show, Ian Ebbett, which was nice to kind of have you reach out and say like, hey, that was a cool story by him. But uh, if you need more guests, like I can one up him or whatever, you know, well, the way you phrased it, we'll, we'll let Ian, you know, just let him know that this is going to be better than his show. But uh, just for <laughs> it could be hard to talk, but we'll do my best. Yeah, that guy's done everything. But uh, before you and I, uh, we get into your coaching career, just for me and the listeners to understand your story a little bit. Uh, did you grow up in that Winnipeg area? Like what was your relationship with sport and what got you hooked on on volleyball to start? Yeah, so I've uh, born and raised in Winnipeg. I've lived here my whole life and, um, you know, always was kind of playing sports growing up. I just like your typical kid, uh, did a little bit of everything and just somewhere along the way, you know, like grade grade six, grade seven kind of thing when you start playing volleyball, went to the tryouts and just gave it a shot, something about it that appealed to me. And uh, ironically enough, my mom was actually my, my first coach in volleyball uh, in grade eight. She was kind of like the one who started with our team and we were not very good at all. We were not a good team, but I love, love the sport and just played all the way through high school. And uh, I would say I was just like a, a good high school player. My, my license says five ten. I might say six feet, but um, you know, I was your average high school player, but really enjoyed playing. And I think really took an interest in the sport and knowing everything about it and knowing who the top teams were and, um, kind of just through that, I think it was basically really a natural progression to coaching. I don't think I was ever going to have a long future in being a high level, uh, volleyball player, but, uh, love the sport, wanted to stay involved and just was so fortunate. Like I have these series of events that have led to me meeting people and, uh, you know, by through those meetings have really been able to make this a lifelong passion. I'm kind of at my, my half life right now, almost of coaching volleyball for how long I've been alive, which is kind of crazy to think about. Nice. So did you start coaching when you were, did you consider yourself done playing after like high school and club and start coaching then? Or was there a little bit of overlap that you started coaching when you were still like a youth player? Uh, well, a little bit of both, I guess. So I played uh, in grade, you know, played high school, so all the way through grade 12. But in grade 12, we had a, a principal who was a, a really good uh, volleyball coach in, uh, in Winnipeg. He had a lot of success. He won a couple of provincial titles at his school before. And he kind of recruited me, quasi recruited me to help him coach like one of the teams in the school. So even though I was still playing in grade 12, he got me to coach this like grade nine girls team with him. That was really my first introduction to coaching. 
And then uh, I played my grade 12 of my 18U club year with uh, with Bison's uh, volleyball club and Bruce Kent, who's uh, a name that a lot of people probably now don't hear as much or might have uh, missed out on. But Bruce is probably one of like the, the best volleyball minds of anyone I've ever met in my whole life. He was a longtime assistant coach at U of M and then was an assistant coach with the national team, both with uh, Garth Pischke and Stelio Duraco. He was our club coach and he really kind of took an interest to, to me in saying that I think he saw a little bit of like a young version of himself in me and said, hey, I think you should get involved in coaching. And I don't know if that means you're not a very good player and you should pursue coaching because you like the sport. <laughs> um, but either way, he kind of was the first person to get me into coaching. And we had planned that I was going to coach the Bison Club the next year, like as I was really just like 18 years old, 19 years old. And uh, the Bison Club actually went away for a couple of years. Uh, there was a few things going on in the city. And he then linked me up with Chris Green, who's another name that, um, you know, we don't hear as much about in volleyball now. But Chris was also a longtime assistant coach in Winnipeg. He was with the University of Winnipeg and then with the national team as well. And I think he ended up coaching women's at, uh, at Lakehead for a few years. So some people might know him from that. And I got linked up with him, and then that's really just what started everything is from that year, and that was back in 2003. So it's really been 18 years now of me uh, coaching volleyball. Wow, wow. And yeah, whenever I hear Chris Green's name, I think of the hardest down ball I've ever seen in my life. Chris Green, I'm glad that, that you know that. So um, for the people who are, who are listening, like Chris, is a, he's a big man. He's actually he's trimmed down a lot over the years, but he's, he's a big guy. And he could hit a standing topspin down ball serve harder than most guys could hit a jump serve. And he would just get, you know, like he put like a whole roll of tape on his hand, right? And he'd just wound that thing up and he'd get up on the boxes and just be smashing down balls at guys and hitting, uh, hitting topspin serves from the baseline. And he'd always, you know, get, get a little sweaty out there. And he, he didn't want to get in Chris's way at practice. He was a pretty uh, intimidating guy, but an awesome coach, uh, super smart and really, really dedicated to uh, the game. And he's kind of the first guy that really got me into coaching. That's kind of where it all starts. Nice, small world. I'm glad you could give him a yeah. shout out because he's come up on the show where I remember being at HBC the first time I met him and I'm peeking around the curtain thinking like, what is that noise? And it sounds like a gun going off as him hitting down balls. That's how heavy this thing sounded. But the uh, the other time he got a shout out was Dustin Snyder mentioned they played an exhibition and uh, actually before the exhibition, they were just practicing with Australia and Australia claimed that the only reason Canada beat them in that wash drill is because Chris Green was winning them a point every third ball on the down ball. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, funny. I don't want to get too far off topic, but um, that's a great that's a great little trick if you're uh, if you're running the down balls. And like I think it, there was always this like as a coach, you'd hit the down ball to the other team. Right. And somehow instead of hitting it to your own team and then you just hit it as hard as you can. And I remember we were in Florida when you were doing against that against Mac. And I think we for sure scored four or five points off me putting some sneaky balls into the corner. So. <laughs> that's great and then so you decide to be a u of m guy and had yeah. you met garth before that or what was the conversation like when you want to become like the manager role or try to join the staff because i think that's what's interesting about sport is uh you and i have that in common where i think we got into coaching when we realized the level we want to compete at wasn't going to match our athletic skills but i've learned as a coach that sometimes athletes don't see it and the last coach they have is usually the bad guy because some athletes are a little delusional and they don't realize like they're not going to be at that level where it sounds like you had a grasp of that so did you have that conversation pretty early on like before you even like attended your first day or how did that conversation come to be that you were a part of the squad with, with Garth there? 
So it's uh, interesting. My dad uh, was a really high-level hockey player uh, when he was younger, and he's basically the same age as Garth. I think maybe one year difference, and they played against each other in high school. And my dad always kind of referenced the fact that they went to basically grew up in like kind of the same part of Winnipeg and uh, were big rivals, but you know never could beat Garth's school and. Um, and they kind of were, grew up in the same part of the city, so they're aware of each other and whatnot. And um, I remember the first time I met Garth, he had come into one of our practices, and my dad had told me to like, oh, you know, make sure you you go and tell Garth that um, you know that I'm your, you know, you're basically this is my dad and who where I come from and whatnot. And he uh, he lighter like eyes lit up right away, and he's like, oh yeah, you know, like uh, Jack, you know, he was a good hockey player, and he knew who he was. And I thought like, okay, this is good, you know, this is kind of this common ground. And um, really didn't speak with him again much that 18U season, um, but through both Bruce and Chris, they both saw this same path through me, um, this same vision of you know you should you should contact Garth, and this is his number or email or whatever it was at the time, and can kind of like facilitate that were the people who told you to meet with him and you know I think you'd be kind of a great manager for him so that's really where it all started and I laughed because we didn't have an assistant coach at the time and it was just Garth and I like it was the two of us who were doing everything that first season and we had a, a, a really good team that year we were ranked number one at different parts throughout the season and there were some kind of guys like kind of half the starting lineup was returning from uh, the year U of M won the year before. So that was the last title U of M has actually won, which is crazy to think about. But that 2003 team, which was just stacked, a uh, crazy, crazy team with Mike Monday and Peter Turpin, Tim Cooper, David Teixeira, uh, Texera, I guess, uh, Troy Plummer, like the guys, they all were had stints to the national team and a really good group of guys. And I always kick myself that I didn't, start there the year before with that group because they were so strong and could have won a title. Um, but I came in there and, you know, half the guys in the team were older than I was. And some of the guys that I had played against a little bit were there. And Garth just kind of threw me right in there. And, and I was basically assistant coach, but with the manager title, you know, but kind of had to do a little bit of both and uh, just kind of kept, kept at it and worked my way through the system a little bit. But I always laugh because the title changed, but the job never really didn't. It was basically just the same all the way through so and i'm curious what is the sense uh, of garth in the community because i know he's so involved that maybe it normalizes after a certain point but even coaching taylor's daughter on the beach whenever i see garth i'm thinking like that's one of the greatest players canada's ever had it's one of the greatest coaches it's like he's he's the guy so do you ever get comfortable around him or what was that maybe that first season like were you just asking him as many questions as you could and taking notes or did you feel like you guys built a pretty big uh, or pretty good trust over the year and then your seasons after that you could be you know comfortable and almost like friends with him or has he always been like the guy in your eyes you know it was a little bit of both I would say I think that I just by my nature I'm a pretty inquisitive person and I like I like stories and I like um, jokes and I like just knowing a lot about people and that very first year I just might have been my second year actually we took a road trip and we went to a tournament in Regina and Garth and I just drove together and the other guys I think were on the bus for some reason Garth and I just rode in his car together and I took this as this opportunity to ask him about every single story I'd ever heard you know all the <laughs> legends about Garth with like picking the uh the quarters off the top of the backboard right and uh the jump contest with the guy from the Denver Nuggets and like how are you friends with Will Chamberlain and just all these different things that you've kind of heard about growing up. And I mean, absolutely 
when you grow up in Winnipeg, I mean, I think being in the scene, you you grow up. I mean, U of W is a, a great program too, right? So you grow up with these two kind of pillars of programs when you're in that era. I mean, I'm I'm born in the mid '80s, so I'm growing up, you know, through the '90s and 2000s where they're winning all the time. Um, but Garth for sure had that had that kind of uh, legendary mystique to him, and you know, I always would ask myself that, like, what am I? how am I really qualified to be here? Right. Like I don't, I don't, I've never really coached before. I'm just kind of learning as I go through. Um, but he, you know, he, he was hard on me for sure. Uh, he, he made me earn everything that I had there. It wasn't, not a lot was really given to me, but I think he saw that I was working really hard at and I was keen at it. And I think each year that I was there, he'd let me in a little bit more, you know, we get to know each other personally a little bit more. Um, but we always kind of kept that that distance a little bit just because I think of the age difference, right, where, um, you know, I was the same age as, as the guys, right? So uh, I naturally was always just kind of closer to them than I was with Garth and uh, had the ability to kind of float back and forth between kind of listening to him and having him vent to me and then me being able to go and take that to the players and kind of relay that in, in a way where they would understand it and, and kind of had that middle ground and I could do the same you know if the players had an issue I could go go back to Garth and explain it into way to them that he wouldn't get as frustrated if it was coming directly from them so um we we spent four years together because he took sabbatical my fifth year there um so he was gone but those four years I'd say it was an interesting and, and complicated relationship at times just anybody you coach together with I think you go through a lot of things and there's those ups and downs um, but I definitely did view him as, you know, a bit of a father figure, right? He's the same age difference between myself and, and my dad. So uh, I think a lot of that was was very similar. And he was always just wanted the best for me and was looking out for me along the way. Now, I'm curious to know how you felt you earned credibility. Because as you mentioned, there's guys on that team who had won a CIS championship and are actually older than you. And here you are providing feedback and you're in the gym. So was it such a culture there that if you could help them, they were going to listen to you? Or did you feel like you had to win over the squad? Because obviously having Garth's credibility would help and anybody would love to be an assistant coach to him. But I'm curious with you so young in your coaching career, did you ever feel like you had like a voice from day one? Or did you have to build confidence and really build trust with the players as, as the season went on and as your your five years went on there? Uh, there's There was certainly each year... I would say a stage to where I was at as far as how comfortable I was with the guys. Um, but the number one thing that I always felt was really important was getting to know the guys personally and gaining their trust as people. And that allowed me to then go to them as giving that volleyball feedback, right? Because I didn't have the resume of being a top level player or have you know been coaching for years. Like realistically, I probably knew less about volleyball in that beginning than their high school coach did, right? So even though they were playing at this higher level now and the game was way faster and everything was happening um, at such a higher level, I didn't have that personal experience. So I had to really get to know the guys. And if I were to go back and coach university again, I think I'd want obviously to have some of that same trust with the guys and have that same aspect. But the way I coach now is obviously way different because I've just seen a lot more of these scenarios happen. Um, But you know, the guys, they really like we got along really well. And, you know, some of my best friends still to this day are from some of those teams that that I coached. And I think they just saw it as, you know, this is this is my friend, Jared. This is a guy that I trust because, you know, we have the same tastes in music and movies and, you know, sports. 
And if he's telling me that he sees this on the court, it's because that's what he sees and there's no real hidden agenda to it. He's not trying to play mind games with me or anything. Um, but, you know, I learned quickly. I, I will say that I feel like at that time I was watching more tape than maybe anybody in the country. That's certainly how I felt, just the way that part of my, my duties, you know, of scouting these teams and breaking up tape and putting everything together for um, Garth, I felt like I watched a lot of volleyball and I picked up on it pretty quickly. And I don't know if this is a new school thing, an old school, a hard-nosed thing, but I'm curious if you could just elaborate on what you felt your strengths were as an assistant coach because I'm all for the assistant coach, you know, being close with the players and learning them as people and, and really building like an honest, genuine relationship where I'm sure there's some old school coaches rolling their eyes being like, no, there's got to be a boundary. You're a coach. You're not their friend all that stuff. But as you look back, because obviously you're a club director now, so you probably mentor a bunch of other coaches, but how important is that role, do you feel, like in our sport and, and in sport in general about an assistant coach, you know, I, I don't know, I don't want to say friends, but maybe being friendly with the players is the right relationship. But how do you feel like you, that helped and is, is kind of necessary for teams to have as part of their, their staff and, and just the, the culture within the team? So that's a great question, Josh. And I think Part of being um, a really top-level coach is knowing knowing your role in the staff. And I think that's where myself as a head coach is going to be way different than myself as an assistant coach. And also, you know, the level of team that you're, that you're working with, right? And I just can kind of think the last few years of some of the different roles that I've had. Um, like at U of M, for example, I mean, it's it seems so long ago now, but it still seems like yesterday at the same time. But realistically... I, I was more of a friend than I was a coach, you know, and I, and I can say that now and I can look back on that um, in those early years. But by my fifth year where everybody on the team was now younger than me, right, um, and they had come into the program and I was already there. So I think there's some of that built in respect was there just from the position that I had. You know, I didn't even have to really do anything. The guys just coming in as new recruits were like, okay, that's our assistant coach. You know, he obviously is here for a reason. He knows what he's talking about. Um, you didn't have to work to earn it as much at that time. Um, I could sense I was shifting more into taking some of that leadership role and distancing myself from the team a little bit more by that fifth year. Um, but when I now coach these teams and I, you know, if I'm kind of building like my ideal staff of, if I'm coaching a team here with the club, I always want to have that one guy who can be the insulation, you know, between the head coach and between the team. And I look to always have that, whether it's a younger guy who just finished playing, who maybe kind of knows the guys on a bit of a different level, um, you know, or a coach that's just a bit more laid back that doesn't take things quite as serious. I think as a, as a head coach, I'm, I'm pretty serious. You know, I, I, have kind of probably a lot of rules and a lot of uh, things that I want the guys to follow. Um, whereas an assistant coach, you know, it's easier for me to just take that step back a little bit and crack a few more jokes and, and be a bit more uh, of a friend to the guys than when I'm in that head coach spot. Nice. Yeah. Good, good advice where I think, yeah, being a head coach is completely different than being an assistant. And I think they need to be approached differently. And uh, I'm glad you mentioned how much tape you're watching. Cause I'm trying to set the scene for our listeners about how tough Canada West was. And I, and I have the results here in front of me where you guys mentioned you guys won the 0203 season. And then uh, at that time, all four semifinalists were Canada West teams. The next year you guys won a bronze, same thing, all four Canada West teams. And we're looking at teams like Alberta's always been good. Trinity Western seemed to be really on the rise. Sask was really good. 
Uh, a few years later, Winnipeg won a championship there in 06, 07. So, you know, as an Ontario guy, this hurts me to say, but Canada West was so dominant there that you guys were winning three medals every year, it felt. So what was the regular season like? And what was your role as, as a guy on that coaching staff? You mentioned, you know, scouting and doing video, but did, did it just honestly feel like every weekend was going to be a battle no matter who you were playing? Yeah, so Canada West was, and and still is, um, but much more back then, was the absolute meat grinder. You know, you played, we had two halves, right? So there was kind of two divisions in, in the conference. So it was Winnipeg, Manitoba, Regina, and Saskatchewan. And then there was Calgary, Alberta, uh, Trinity Western, and UBC. And, you know, no, no disrespect to Regina. I, I'm not, uh, every team, you know, every program, uh, has great players and works hard, but they were they were the one team that was you know consistently a little bit off the mark. Uh, they were the one that kind of struggled to gain you know kind of make the playoffs and stuff consistently at that time. But other than that, it was like night in night out. Everybody was so good and it was so tough. And you used to play your division home and homes, right? So you would play each other four times in a year. So you'd play two you know two at their place and they'd come to your place for two, and then you would play. The four teams from the other division, you'd play them either at home or on the road. So usually if you got, you know, if Trinity came to you, you'd go to UBC and then same thing with Alberta and Calgary, right? So um, you kind of knew every year you're going to go to BC once, you're going to go to Alberta once, and then you'd go to Saskatchewan twice. And and it was so tough. Like every night, uh, you never really got a night off. And I mean, even though, say, like my my first year there, Calgary, I don't think was, they weren't one of the four teams, but like if you didn't play your best or very close to it, you would lose, you know, and um, UBC was kind of the same that year because you mentioned like back then it was the top four at nationals every year was the four teams from Canada West almost, you know, and uh, you'd have at that time, like Dalhousie was, was tough um, and you'd have, you know, Laval would be mixed in there. And then at that time, I don't think, I don't want to say anything wrong, but I don't think Ontario had quite broken through into the medals, kind of like my first few years when I was there. And then it came, it started happening consistently near the end of my five years. But, you know, Canada West, you go to the final four of Canada West and all four teams were going to nationals, right? It was just like, that was the easiest weekend of the year was Canada West final four. Cause you knew you all were going to nationals. You knew that you're going to be seated probably one through four. Maybe they'd put you at five and you know, you'd play the four. It didn't really matter. Um, but you had to just get to that point. Like everything else to that point was, was the hard spot um, just to get into one of those positions. But um, you almost didn't want to play your best at Canada West final four because you, you didn't want to give away your, your secrets, right? You didn't want the other team to see, like if we feel we have one way of beating you, we're going to save it till next week in the nationals. We don't want to give you a week to, uh, to prepare. So yeah, like, uh, like I said, everybody was, was so good back then. And I think, now there's just so many teams they've added in so many programs that the players have, have been spread a lot thinner across Canada West. Right. And I think also a big, big part of that was there were a lot of Ontario guys who used to come West to um, the top programs and it still will happen now. And obviously guys go to different programs all across the country, but um, there were a lot of Ontario guys that were going to coming to Western Canada or going to Dalhousie. Like that was a big part of it back then. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And one thing just to pick your brain on as a Canada West guy, I, I always ask the players this, and I'm curious how you handled it as a coach, is 
in Ontario, and don't get me wrong, every league has a little bit different setup where I think RSEQ has like an interlock system and they might play a lot of matches against the same team on the same weekend. But here in Ontario, you kind of play somebody first semester and then you play them second semester where you guys have to plan for them and beat them on Friday and then bounce back and do it on Saturday when everybody kind of knows the plan and knows the matchup. So how tough was that on you as an assistant coach kind of reviewing what happened the night before and making adjustments? Like how much cat and mouse is going on in those battles because you're, you're doing it against guys like Larry McKay and Terry Daniluk and other like top coaches, right? So how, how fun, but how like difficult is that in the Canada West to beat the same team two days in a row? So I'm glad you mentioned that because that is a huge difference in the, the scheduling. And I think part of there, there's probably so many reasons as to why, you know, each conference has different strengths and weaknesses, but knowing that you have to play that same team two nights in a row, I think that does help prepare you for four nationals, right? Like knowing that the games are always going to get harder. So if you start in the quarterfinals, you know, you know, in theory, your semifinal is going to be harder than your quarterfinal. And obviously as you move on to the gold medal game. So I think a lot of those times, like when you're going on the road, you're thinking, okay, if we can just get a split in this series, you know, we're, we're in good shape, right? So if we're going on the road to Alberta, we just got to get one of those two games and we know that that's probably going to put us in a pretty good position later. But then when you, if you win Friday night, right. Uh, then you're now you're thinking, okay, now we're not satisfied with, um, with going home with just one. So you got to go even deeper to find a way uh, to win. And I think the one that stands out to me the most of all of the road trips we ever had was we went to Trinity one year and this is, it sounds so trivial now, like looking back, but the men always played second, right? So I'm not sure. I think now they kind of, they rotate a little bit to maybe one night the women will play second and they kind of mix it up a little bit. But when you're going from Winnipeg to uh, to Langley, and it's only two hours, I know it doesn't seem like a huge deal, but the women for U of M, when I was there, I bet you they went five sets 95% of the time if they were playing before us right and not only did they go five sets but they would it would be two nothing for one team or the other and then it would go to five and the team who was up to nothing would almost always win so you felt like it was a complete waste of time right like why did we why did we have to go through this third and fourth <laughs> set uh you were already up to nothing how did you not just win so the guys are warming up you know and you're going through all this and you never really know when you're going to play you always just know it's 20 minutes after the women's match ends but you can't you can't not warm up right because if the game ends you got to be ready to go and we won the first night against Trinity and I want to say this was in about like 05 or 06 I, I think Ron Pike was still the head coach Ben wasn't the head coach yet and uh, we played the second night same thing so we won and it was it was after midnight in uh, in Langley, like the games were so long that they were both two five setters, which is two in the morning in Winnipeg, right? And it's like I just remember feeling like everybody was so exhausted that you just like went back to the hotel room and just went to bed, and then you got on the flight the next night and you and you went home, right? And um, it was it's one of those things where it's really hard to beat a good team two days in a row. And I think you're seeing that now in all of these sports, professional sports that have switched to sort of the more of like the baseball style model, right? Because to cut down on travel with, with COVID is if you win the first night, like it's tough. It doesn't even matter how closely matched the two teams are when they play that series, it's almost always going to flip to the other team the second night. So the ability to go on the road and win two games in Canada West, that's, that goes a really long way. I think to prepare you for, uh, for nationals. 
Yeah, and you mentioned the the championship year that you just missed out on, but you did walk away with two medals. And I'm curious what the feeling was at nationals because it's cool to hear you say that you know there was almost a relaxed mood around Canada West because you knew you were going to nationals. But I, I'm always shocked by, and I don't have the records in front of me, and I should have looked this up, but the the order is never the same. You can win Canada West and you can finish third at yeah. nationals. Like it's never consistent. Or when Kerry McDonald, who I'm a big fan of, they won national championships. I think they finished bronze at Canada West. So there's just this this weird shuffle that seems to happen, right? So when you guys get to nationals, obviously all eyes are on the quarterfinals. But do you tend to look ahead, or do you de- tend to pull up previous matches you've had against certain people or how are you guys planning, but staying focused on the current match that you're not looking ahead and being like, Oh, our, our semi this year is going to be against so-and-so and we've already played them. Like how, how did Garth like to manage the three days and how did you like to manage the three days of going through nationals trying to win a medal? So my first year, I'll kind of break this into three segments if that's okay. But we went to nationals my first three years and uh, the first year we lost, we hosted the Canada West final four because and the interesting thing about this is the, the formats never seem to stay the same because they're always trying to find a better way to do it. But at that point, it was Canada West Final Four and whoever was the higher seed in the like Prairie Division, so sort of that Manitoba, Winnipeg, Regina, Saskatchewan, they would be the host for Final Four. So we played Trinity in the semis. We won. It was just one game. And then we played Saskatchewan in the final. And we lost uh, like 16-14 or something in the fifth set. I'm pretty sure it was extra points. And um, so they got to be number one seed at nationals. We were number two and Alberta was number three. But it was one of those weird scenarios where we beat Saskatchewan, I think, three out of four times in the regular season, but only beat Alberta maybe once. Out of, uh, we only played them twice because we, we, I think we split with them. And it was just one of those where, you know, we could beat Saskatchewan, but we couldn't really beat Alberta, but Alberta couldn't really beat Saskatchewan. You know, so the kind of the domino effect of that was now we were playing um, – Alberta and the semis and you know you kind of go into it and we played Dalhousie in the quarters and we were the first quarter of the day it was in Laval at the, at the the old field house which is like one of the most intimidating places you could ever go in volleyball in Canada and I haven't been to the new gym but um, all these people just like holding up these signs and yelling kill at you uh, while you're on the court <laughs> is is very very intimidating for sure um, but we beat Dalhousie fairly easily. And I remember just thinking like, okay, great. Like we're done for the day. I can go back to the hotel and relax. Right. And Garth telling me like, no, like, you got to stay here and, and watch this next game. Cause that's who we're going to play. And thinking, okay, like that makes sense. And it was Alberta. So I stayed and then calling him and letting him know I'm ready to come back. And he says like, no, you got to stay for all the games. Cause you have to basically like, we have to take um, video and we have to take stats of every single team in the tournament because we don't know who we're going to play. And at that point, I remember thinking like, okay, this is a little bit harder than I anticipated. You know, like I'm kind of getting now like this vision of what coaching at this level is really all about. And um, I was there and this is pre like pre cell phone, not to really kind of like make myself sound too old, but um, you weren't like texting or like just hanging out while you were there. Like I'm on the computer. That's all I'm doing. I had nothing else to really keep myself entertained. Um, so I put in a shift on that first day at nationals. I remember thinking like, this was a long, long day. I am, I'm definitely tired. And then, uh, knowing I have to go back to the hotel and and do the video of Alberta, right? Because we're going to have to watch video on them. And this is probably like one of the worst experiences of of my five years that was there. And I'm glad this has come up, but, um, At that time, we're filming on this kind of like older school video camera and Saskatchewan, 
I knew their assistant coach. He was a decent guy. He was from Brandon. He had moved out to Saskatoon. I knew him pretty well. He was like uh, pausing every single time that um, there'd be a stop and play on his footage. So all of the teams have their camera in like this tower above the court in the field house. And they're all filming from the same spot. But I guess on his camera, he had the same remote that worked for ours. But ours had some sort of feature where if it was paused for too long, it turned off. So he paused his camera in between sets and that turned our camera off. And I never went back up there to check it until the game was over. Right? I didn't even realize that it had paused. So I go to do the video of our who were playing in the semifinal. And it's like one in the morning because I've been at all four quarterfinals by the time I actually get to do this. And there's no video footage, right? Oh like the camera had turned off. So I'm in my own room. I'm rooming with our trainer at the time, our athletic therapist, and Garth's in his own room. So I go to Garth's room and knock on the door. He was already asleep. And I'm not, I'm not like, I'm not saying he was in the wrong for sleeping. It was late at night. Like he, he didn't do the video. I did the video. And uh, I'm telling him like, hey, you know, Garth, uh, you know, we don't have any video. And I'm trying to explain to him. And he was pretty mad, I think. I mean, I think understandably so. But I really like didn't do anything wrong. So he's frantically on the phone. He gets a hold of Dan Oda and Dan had filmed the games because they were going to play the loser of that game on the consolation side. Right. So we drive to a different hotel because Garth made this brilliant decision. He didn't want to stay at the tournament hotel. So we couldn't even just like link up with Dan. We get the video. It's a different camera than, than we have. And I, I, this is not a joke, uh, a joke, Josh, when I am rewinding the video to get back to the beginning in between each rotation, I'm falling asleep, right? It's like, that's how tired I am. And then when the VCR gets back to the beginning, it kind of makes this clicking noise of, you know, the tape is stopped and I wake back up and I do it all over again. Right. And I don't even know if teams still do this, but you used to split your video up into like each rotation. Right. So every time the setter was in one, you'd see all their side outs. Right. So you go through the whole game and then you're rewinding, you do it on six and five and four. And that was kind of how we used to watch our video back then. So it, you have to watch the game six times, right? Like that's how long it takes you to do it. And then you put it all together. But the, the finished product is like five minutes long, right? Because you, you cut out all the, all the other crap that you don't really need to see. So I'm up to like three or four in the morning. I'm falling asleep in between every rotation. Uh, it takes me hours to do this. I haven't ate, right? Um, and then we get into the, the meeting room the next day. And we watch it for five minutes and the guys are like, okay, great, thanks. You know, and that's it. And then we proceed to go on and lose, get our butts kicked three straight by Alberta. And I'm thinking like, okay, I guess this is coaching, right? Like I'm going to put in literally 10 times the amount of work behind the scenes that the athletes are never going to see for five minutes of video. And then we go out and we just get smoked anyways, right? So um, that's when I really understood like this is a lot harder than, than I ever thought it was going to be. Um, and then we ended up losing to Trinity that year, uh, for bronze. And that was their first ever medal at, uh, in men's volleyball that year. So 2004, that was their first ever medal. And then we went bronze the next two years. And, um, I remember being so disappointed. We lost bronze to Trinity cause we'd beaten them all year and I thought we were a better team. Uh, but they played really great and beat us. And then the next year, Saskatchewan was a way better team than us. And we hadn't beat them all season, but we beat them for bronze. And then the following year, we beat uh, Dalhousie for bronze. And that one, I remember thinking I wasn't excited in the least bit because I felt we should have been in the final. So three completely different feelings to being in the same game. And that's the cool part about, uh, about that team sport. You know, I have to know, by the time you left U of M, was there ever a digital way of doing this and you're cutting this on like Final Cut? Or were you always rocking the two VCRs? Because that sounds, as much as I watch film and try to cut it now, I can't imagine doing the, the amount of hours you put in to produce that five-minute video. 
So I used to have uh, this brown suede bag with a purple padded liner in it. And this was Garth's VCR bag. And I would carry this thing around campus. Like I'd go to my classes. I was a student at U of M at the time. And I would just have these two VCRs and I would just go everywhere with them. And there was one year where I slipped on the ice. I mean, you know, uh, winter in Winnipeg is not exactly ideal. And I took a huge fall and the VCR came flying out of the bag and I landed on it, smashed the VCR to pieces, completely broke it. So I frantically drove home, uh, grabbed my grandma's VCR and put it in the bag. And we used that VCR for the next year before Garth, you know, he didn't even realize it. And I actually told that story at Garth's uh, retirement last year at, at Nationals <laughs> at U of M. He, he had no idea. But that was a, I want to say my first two years, we did the two VCR method. And for those who aren't familiar with it, like I don't even think they can really comprehend how it would work. Like I don't even know how, if I could even explain it to someone how you would do this, but basically you would have the one VCR with the footage go to the TV and then you'd wire the other VCR into the TV. So it would record whatever was on the TV and you would just pause it, the one that you were, the blank tape, and you'd record as you worked your way through to make this series of, of edits, right? And yeah, it sucked. Like it, it was it was a terrible process, but I, I didn't know any better. Like I didn't know what I was doing. So I just thought this was the way that it always is. But the next year, maybe my third year, I guess, we went digital. So we had a, like an iMac or whatever, I guess. And uh, we, I would use iMovie, Apple Movie or whatever it's called. It's been so long, iMovie, I guess. And that made it, that cut out probably about 20 hours of work, I feel like. Like I could Jeez. do it all in one, <laughs> one sitting, you know, and just get it and uh, kind of splice it up as I'd watch the game. So I just cut everything into clips, label what they are, and then just sort them into the proper footage later. And I'm sure like now I don't think assistant coaches even do that. Right. I think it's all just done for you. So, I mean, it changes things like the, the drastic difference of being a coach 15 years ago. I mean, it's, it's insane how different it is now for, for cutting tape. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And just to jump ahead in your career, because you've obviously accomplished more than just uh, what you were doing with U of M there. So uh, I'm curious, when you jumped back to club and were a big part of the Bisons Volleyball Club, did that just match you you graduating U of M and you you know had to you know face the realities of real life and you couldn't be an assistant volleyball coach for the rest of your life? So you, you jumped into the real world and then started coaching club? Or how did that transition happen when you, you made the switch from university to club ball? So... My first year coaching at U of M, I also was coaching with the club program. So it was kind of uh, the two were sort of hand in hand together. And I did that uh, for the first four years where I was kind of working my way through and head coached a little bit and worked with different uh, with different age groups and stuff. But I was never really kind of like our our lead coach in the club, I guess you could say. We had a lot of other really good coaches and guys were working with different uh, with different teams. And then I got a group of guys who uh, was, a, we had a really, really strong group of guys at 16U and I kind of worked with that group all the way through. So we lost um, the national final at 16U, lost the quarters in 17U and then lost the national final again in, uh, in 18U with that same same group of guys. And Kevin Stevens was, was our best player. I don't remember him from McMaster. Um, so he ended up going out to Hamilton to play out there. But uh, that kind of took me through that, that time frame and, and Garth took a sabbatical. Uh, in uh, 2008 so 2007 2008 took a sabbatical and that's when I kind of took over the club in, in a way like he was he wasn't around as much so I had a lot more duties sort of on the admin side of things and then he came back for one more year and I just coached that last year and after I'd done all of that I kind of thought you know I'm not here at U of M anymore um, 
I think I want to, you know, kind of do something on my own. And a big part of that was uh, Dan Gilbert, who was an assistant coach at U of M and I was there as well. And we became very, very good friends. We had a really similar philosophy on coaching and, and life for that matter. And we coached with Phil Hudson, who is now the head coach at University of Winnipeg for women's, but he was the interim head coach when Garth took a sabbatical. And he really encouraged us. He said, you know, you guys, like you love this, you have so much passion for it, you should start your own club. So we kind of threw that idea around for a while, but we knew that we didn't want to leave in 2009 because that was the year we had this 18U team. We didn't want to pull them away from Bisons, and we, we were very loyal to that. But we met with Garth after the season, and I think he always sort of thought when we had arranged this meeting that we wanted to take the club over. And I think he was preparing for us to sort of say, hey, like we want this to be our thing. So when we told him that we were wanting to start our own club, he was definitely surprised uh, for sure. But I think he understood and like was no hard feelings at all. I mean, it was very much we were the way we explained it to him was that we had this vision of what we wanted to do. And, um, you know, that we wanted to be able to send guys to any program in the country and didn't necessarily want it to just be a feeder for U of M. And if they still went to U of M, that's great. We have nothing against the university, nothing against Bison's at all. Um, but just wanted a bit more of that kind of freedom and and honestly, the creativity to just do our own thing, you know, and making our own logo and picking our own colors and designing our own uniforms and, and just being able to do whatever we wanted. So he kept a couple teams sort of in that Bison uh, fold for that first couple of years. And then uh, after a while, those guys had graduated and it was kind of like completely shut down. And then that left us for a few years where it was just kind of 204 and Winman kind of became the big the big two rivals. Um in, in the province and in the city. And now Bison's has kind of come back and they have a few teams and with Lupo being there, you know, they're trying to get a full full club going again. So there's a lot of layers to that within that and the kind of the dynamics of club volleyball in Winnipeg. It's, it's a very interesting one for sure. Friend of the show, Jeff Miller, started an amazing golf brand called Club Jason. Designed with quality in mind, Jason sets no limits on comfort, feel and appeal. They are devoted to growing the game of golf and creating opportunities for those who could benefit greatly from a little extra support. 10% of all sales will go to a Club Jason scholarship for a female golfer. An additional 10% of all sales will go towards junior golf programs in Ontario. Club Jason wanted to pass on some savings to you, official friend of the show. Use promo code DIMES, that's D-I-M-E-S, at checkout to receive 15% off your order. Jason also offers free shipping in North America on any order over $99. Visit clubjason.com, that's C-L-U-B-J-S-O-N.com to check out their amazing clothing and to learn more. Jason, join the club. Yeah, so is it fair to say that the Bison Club was designed to be a feeder system? Because I, I think that is popular in some provinces, and in other provinces, like the clubs don't have any affiliation with with post secondary, and they're kind of like like you said, they the athletes are encouraged to go anywhere they like. So maybe Kevin Stevens is an example where he goes to MAC. Would he have been pursued by Manitoba, or was he be given like the freedom to pursue at ECIS school he wanted to go to? Like I'm I'm thinking when Manitoba was really good with like Voth and Pischke, those guys all played on the same club together, right? So there was kind of a natural feeder system, but was it was it deliberate or did the athlete really have the, the choice to go anywhere they wanted? Yeah, so they 100% were free to go uh, wherever they would like. But I think there was always kind of this understanding that, you know, if you're playing Bison Volleyball Club, that meant that 
you know, you probably would like to go on that path to be playing at U of M. And, you know, I have so many thoughts on this topic because I, I have been on multiple sides of it, you know, and I've seen the pros and cons. And I think if it's done in the right way and if it's in a city where you're the only one, I think it, there's huge benefit, right? So I think if you are kind of from somewhere where you're the only university in your city and you're kind of the only main club and you can foster those athletes and bring them through in a way that they're kind of learning a little bit and you can work with them and you can kind of have that hands-on uh, relationship when they're younger, I think it really works well. The problem in Winnipeg, and this is where things kind of got really interesting, was that the rivalry between Bison Volleyball Club and Winman in that kind of like early to mid to late kind of uh, 2000s, I guess, that sort of 10-year stretch where club volleyball really became like really, really big, right, is that if you played for Bi- like Winman all the way through, you kind of like you kind of hated Bison's, right? Like that was your sort of natural rival. So now when U of M recruits you, it was hard for those athletes to separate the University of Manitoba with Bison's because they were kind of one of the same, right? And it was Garth who was coaching the club team, and then it was Garth who was coaching the university team. So I think naturally, just as a young athlete, like a high school aged athlete, you you develop that rivalry and you don't have anything against them per se, but you certainly want to beat them. So it kind of went in this direction where it was like Winman guys were kind of going to U of W a little bit and Bison guys were kind of going to, to U of M. But then, you know, that's what we started seeing was on that team, you know, we had this really strong 18U team. Like, so we lost that national final in 2009 and, you know, Kevin was our best player. He went to McMaster and Matt Stubler was our other left side. He went to U of W and one of our middles went to U of W as well. And it was kind of like we're, we're putting in all this work, you know, for these guys and we're training them and all these resources that are going into them and they're not coming to U of M, right? And it kind of developed, made things a little bit awkward. And that's why we said, you know what, we just want to get out of this altogether and let's just be completely unaffiliated and wherever they go, we'll be happy because we'll have done our job as club coaches where if they play for 204 for five years and they can go anywhere in the country and we're just happy that they have that opportunity, right? So I think every city and every university is a little bit different. But in Winnipeg, I know that Garth had, had really started to feel like he had an easier time recruiting once the club ended. And like 204 was actually a really good thing for him because it now he could recruit Winman and 204 players and neither of them really had any kind of built-in rivalry with the Bisons, even though that wasn't necessarily U of M, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, that's great to hear. And for any of our listeners not from Manitoba, I was wondering if you could just set the scene because I've I've got the Volleyball Manitoba website pulled up and they have this great yep. link about like find a club. And it's interesting that like Northern Manitoba, I don't think has boys volleyball, but I imagine like hockey and some other sports are really big there. But it seems like Winnipeg might be the center for boys volleyball. And then obviously like the West, like Brandon might have it. But when you guys are playing on your provincial tour, does it really come down to 204 versus Winman? Or are there some other clubs that you might want to just tip your cap to and say they're doing a really good uh, job with boys volleyball right now in Manitoba? So. In Manitoba, there are a lot of really good pockets of volleyball where you'll see some good players come through. The problem with it in Manitoba is that they're all close enough to Winnipeg that eventually athletes probably want to find their way here into the city, right? And that's that's the hard part is I've always said there's as many kind of good little surrounding areas that have, you know, strong high school programs and really committed and dedicated people who, who want to put the time into club 
but they're they're not far enough away, you know. So if you look at Alberta, for example, you know, if you have kind of your Lethbridge and Red Deer and Grand Prairie, um, you know, Edmonton, Calgary, obviously, but you have some of these kind of other places, like you're you're happy to be on the best club players, you know, team of club players in Grand Prairie and go and compete and try to beat you know the best team from Calgary, right? Um, whereas in Winnipeg, it's sort of in Manitoba, you know, you're thinking, well, I'm only like half an hour, an hour away. I want to go play with those other guys because I want to be on the best team in the province and I want to try to win nationals. Right. So uh, like, for example, in Steinbach, where, you know, probably famously Eric Lepke is probably the player that most people are most familiar with. Right. So he played for the pilots uh, program, which is a really strong program. They have male and female. They do a lot of really good things. They have some some great coaches. Um, They have a, a college team like Providence College, which is kind of they're the pilots. So that's kind of where the pilots comes from. Um, but it's quick, right? It's a quick drive from Steinbach to Winnipeg. Like it's worth it for those guys to come into the city if they want to play on a really, a really top team. And um, the same thing with Selkirk. Like Selkirk is uh, a really, really rich, like volleyball history uh, community where um, Dale Iwanoshko was probably like the most famous name to ever come from Selkirk, kind of like the late 80s. Uh, played with U of M, you know, was an amazing player, one of the best players ever from U of M. Uh, but Jim Schreier, you know, Jim was the former coach at U of M when Garth was on leave. He was the high school, uh, you know, coach there, always had a good program. But same thing. It's only like a half an hour outside of the city. So eventually, you know, Royals Volleyball Club in Selkirk, like 14U, 15U, 16U are always really, really good. But all it takes is one player to want to come play in the city. And then it, the team can kind of fall apart, right, because they lose that that big guy. So I feel bad in a way because I think it's really important that we have a lot of strong clubs and teams for us to play against. And what ends up usually happening is by 18U, you know, it's like Winman and 204 traditionally kind of have been the two teams battling it out. And then, you know, Brandon has had good teams for sure. Um, but as far as in Winnipeg, it's kind of like you're drawing all these players into these two teams. And there's so many good high school programs. Like you're, you're narrowing it down to where a lot of really good players uh, just decide they're not going to play anymore because they feel like they're on the third best team in the city and it's not worth it, right? So um, that's the hard part to to kind of the battle a little bit of, of what you're going through. But on the same side of it, you know you're always going to have a really intense final to every tournament, right? And you have a really intense provincials because those two teams are both usually so strong. Yeah, that that's great to hear because just looking at like the National Exodus program, I think Koski was there and was Clegg there as well. Like I think they've got players. You, you mentioned uh, Lepke is probably the pride and joy. I think he's just a great player. Wherever he comes from, he should be the pride and joy because he's just such a fun player to watch. But I think the Schreimer family is from from the Manitoba for sure, but the Winnipeg area. Like there's just so many good players. The Pischke family, like the Voss, like there's just so many good volleyball families and volleyball clubs, right? So w- with you guys going through your provincial circuit. Is it linked to the high school? Because And the reason I ask is in Ontario, we have like a big overlap. But I think out west uh, in Alberta and BC, they kind of let high school do its own thing. And then club starts afterwards in like December, January. Do you guys have the same overlap where you're fighting with high school? Or does it tend to work out together that like the top players aren't getting worn out or injury prone with the, how long the, the volleyball season becomes? So I, I love the system in Manitoba. I know it's up for debate and a lot of people probably could name the pros and cons, but high school volleyball in Manitoba is it's a big deal, right? And it gets it gets a lot of attention. You know, the provincial final will be played at University of Manitoba, usually, sometimes U of W. You know, we'll have a couple thousand people there watching the final, right? And it'll be played on a Monday night and it's on 
you know, they'll broadcast the game on local access cable, you know, which I've had the honor of calling uh, one game for. I made too many comments about the refereeing, I guess, and wasn't welcome back. But that's <laughs> that's a whole other story. Um, but uh, it, it flows so well into the club season. And I know there are people out there in the club who say, oh, I wish we, we could start earlier. And it's unfair that the other provinces are training longer than us. But the reality to it is that the, the club volleyball season you know it doesn't start till high school and the reason that is is because the high school programs do such a good job we don't we don't need to do both at the same time right and and they are like these robust programs that these coaches are running at high school from you know the top programs maybe will start like a week or two before uh the school season starts so kind of that you know mid to late august will kind of get going and then you'll get right into it where it's like there's a tournament like the first weekend of school you know like you're you're going back to school and on that first weekend, you're already arranging rides to like, OK, you know, we're at the U of W tournament this weekend and who can be there and who can drive. You don't even have uniforms yet. And like it just it just gets going, you know, and right away you're into it. And it goes all the way through the fall into kind of that early December. And then there's usually kind of like a week off and club tryouts start and then club goes, you know, a little bit of break, obviously, kind of for Christmas and New Year's. And then you go until that May long weekend kind of thing when it usually all wraps up. Right. So. I don't really see the need for a club to go much earlier, but what we're seeing now in this kind of new world, right, this COVID kind of pandemic world is I think a lot of people are starting to think a little bit differently about it, you know, and you're starting to see some of these guys who think that, you know, maybe I, I kind of enjoyed this last year, you know, not not having to coach volleyball every day after school, right? And we're seeing so much of that less kind of extracurricular activities that, some of these club programs might kind of fill that gap. Like I know for us in the fall, we did some, some programming in the fall because there was no school volleyball. Right. And it's one of those, we have to kind of protect the kids from themselves. Like, I think there's a lot of kids who, who would prefer to play club year round um, if they had the choice and they, they wouldn't want to play school because they, you know, if they don't go to a really strong team or they, they don't like their coach, you know, whatever it may be. And they, they love the club stuff so much, but I just think high school volleyball is, is so much fun. And I think that's something that gets lost sometimes in this is like you should be having fun. Right. And you should be playing with your friends and you should get to play after school with some some fans, you know, and people coming to cheer you on and, and getting to go to these tournaments. And and like I, I look back, some of my fondest memories in the sport still, even though I've done all these experiences, are still some of that stuff that happened when we were in high school and some of those trips that we took. So I hope it doesn't change too much but i'm worried that the system might be changing a little bit just because of what's going on in the world nice yeah thanks for sharing that we'll wait and see because i'm sure everybody's world's going to change slightly but uh wanted to jump into your role as a club coach because you've been to two national finals and you've won two national finals so i'm curious how you like to frame it like can you sometimes tell right away at tryouts that you guys you guys have a shot and this is going to be a fun year and you start talking national championship or how do you like to you know find the balance between like just full out all in we're going to win a national championship versus a team who's going to say you know we're going to follow the process and we're going to try to be really really good in may like how do you find your balance on that spectrum and how do you like to lay out like your club seasons with your teams so i think there's been a major evolution uh to myself as a coach as the, how this all kind of comes about and i can remember years where you know the first practice like getting the guys in the room and getting the whiteboard out and and drawing on their like we are the best team in the country, you know, and we are going to win nationals. And, and this is something that I think I took from Garth a little bit, but 
when you walked into U of M, like you, the expectation was at that time, you know, in a program of that much success was that you were going to be playing on, you know, the second weekend in March for the national championship. And Garth's schedule went right up into that, that day, you know, like we fly out on this day to nationals and in September, like there's no way you would know that, but if you really can kind of see that and you plan for it, then it's, that's your vision and goal the whole time. Um, but you know, in club volleyball, it's so much different. And I think for a long time, I was really putting the emphasis on, on winning being the only thing that mattered, you know, and that was the number one goal was we want to be the national champs. You know, we want, we want to win and we'll do whatever it takes for that to happen. And, you know, we're going to be the best team and, and that's it. That was the only measure of success that we really had. And, you know, ironically, uh, and I spoke to Dave Preston about this a lot. And uh, Dave is someone that, you know, I've had many good chats with over the years about volleyball. And I think, you know, he's been in that similar situation where Mac has had so much success, right, but haven't been able to win that that big game, you know. And I think that if your only measure of success was that, national championships, then, you know, some people would say like, yeah, Mac's not a very good program, but anybody who knows anything knows that, that Mac has been, you know, one of maybe the two or three best programs in the country for the last, maybe like going on 15 years now. Right. And have consistently been in that, that top tier year after year after year and are graduating players, you know, to go onto the national team and to play pro and continue in the sport. So, I think I started seeing that a little bit and it came from, from not winning as much, you know? And I think the the pessimistic view, somebody out there listening could say, yeah, well, now you're only saying that winning doesn't matter if you're not winning. Right. And I think you just, you just gain that perspective and you realize that if we are coming one game short, for example, of winning the national championship, but if eight of our players from this 18 U team are going to play post-secondary and, you know, guys are coming back to coach in our club and, you know, are continuing to give back to the sport. Was it really a failure? Right. Because we lost one game to one team who, you know, was was better than we were. And I think that that really became crystal clear to me in 2012, which a, uh, a team that, you know, if I say 2012, you might not necessarily clue into who it was. But, you know, we lost to Crush in the 2011 and 2012 national final, 18 U, you know, both years in a row. And, um, you know, in 2011, they did something that not many teams do where they won it basically as all 17 year olds. You know, everybody was still a year down and they beat our, you know, our 18U team in the final. And then the next year, you know, they just uh, happened to add, you know, Stephen Marr and Jason McCarthy, which is like, oh, okay, that's great to the defending national <laughs> champs. We're just going to add these two guys, right? And, you know, now we have this whole new team of guys and we lost them in the national final again. And you take a step back and you realize, like, you know what? we had a really, really good team. We lost one game and we lost to a team who was better than we were. And there's no shame in that whatsoever because these guys are all great players and continue to be great players. So for me now, it's it's hard to come into a season and tell the guys like right off the hop that we are going to be the best team, you know, because you just, especially in club, like you don't know what's out there. You know, you don't really know who's moved around as much and Who's playing with who now and which guy transferred to which club? So when you start that process in the beginning, you know, you, you don't really want to make that the sole focus. And it's really now just become for us. And it's so cliche in sports, but like, just let's just do our work and let's just become 
as strong a team as we can possibly be. And wherever that gets us at the end, as long as we're playing our best volleyball at the end of the season, that's really what's most important to me. Yeah, I'm glad you gave Crush a shout out there because when we started going down memory lane, I think uh, my good friend Garrett May would mention his 18 new year. I think he lost to Larry McKay's Windman team. So I think uh, John May and the Crush volleyball family probably owed you guys one. So uh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was uh, that year was uh, this kind of like weird. There sort of it pops up every couple of years where Larry will run the strike volleyball club, right? Which is kind of this like offshoot that he has um, where sometimes. Larry's been involved with Winman, and sometimes it's strike and sometimes it's like Winman strike and it's hard to kind of keep track uh, sometimes of what the names were with those teams but uh, that was a really really good team that beat uh, Crush that year and I think I, I his name escapes me but kind of the other big left side with Garrett that year I think was a little bit injured which kind of hurt that Crush team a little bit yeah Richard um, I think he had some some back stuff going on because I don't think he even went on to play university but he did have a very no. good club career so and they I, he was that guy was so good at 16U because that was the 16U national final, right? It was crush beat uh, Winman uh, back then uh, with a lot of the same guys. So kind of like Devin Plett would probably be one of the bigger names from that Winman group who went on to play uh, at Trinity, and then Evan Jackson who played at um, at U of M. But Evan Evan didn't even play their 18U year. He was injured, so they won that title without him. But like Kevin Bomber's back, who played at UW, and like just a lot of really good volleyball players um, that were on that team that uh, that did well. And Larry coached, and I think the joke was like Larry didn't move the whole tournament. Like I think that was kind of the joke. Like he sat in his chair the whole <laughs> tournament, and they still won the whole thing, um, which is classic Larry. Larry is uh, so interesting on the sidelines sometimes, but. Um, yeah, that group that we lost to uh, in 2012 with uh, was was a pretty like when you start to go through the list and you're like, okay, yeah, that can make sense why we lost. You know, we were just, like I said, Mar and McCarthy and Coker and Demienko and uh, Lucas Coleman and uh, Reed May was a libero. Like it was uh, a pretty good club team. There's no shame in losing to those guys. So yeah, I would argue tooth and nail. It's probably the best club team Ontario's had, and I would I would say that to good friend Eric Matson's face because he had a heck of a club team with the Hunt brothers and Schachter and them <laughs> Eric, too. But <laughs> Eric is a great guy, but I I'd, I would uh, I don't want to offend Eric either. But I would I would go with I think Crush is probably. I mean, I've been in volleyball club volleyball now since two thousand two. If you're just looking at like a run of of years. It's gonna be hard for anybody to top that. That was pretty uh, pretty impressive. I'm sure um, in uh, in BC uh, Focus, I think they were called with um, like uh, Zach uh, Johnson and uh, Brody Hofer. They won basically every year too. But the fact that Crush was playing up for majority of the time and still winning that was the thing that was always the most mind boggling. So. Yeah, like the fun fact in Ontario was I think they beat Storm in 17U, and that was Stephen Mars' Storm team, and Storm went on to win Nationals, and I think at Provincials, Crush beat them like 18 and 15, so it, it showed in their age group they were just that much better than everybody else, and I know they had some overage guys that they wanted to include in Nationals, and it was cool, but mm -hmm. uh, for them to play up and, and win was it was definitely an accomplishment, but uh, enough about them, this is your episode, sure. so... <laughs> Fair enough, they've got uh, enough credit, credit where credit's due, but they've got enough. Yeah, John May's popped on enough on Sharp Cuts, so he gets his due on this show enough. But uh, I, I did want to pull on one point you just mentioned there, that you take a lot of pride in how many athletes can play post-secondary. And I had a, a great conversation with Pat Johnson when we had him on the show because once you reach a certain level of coaching, like you really get it. And the example I always give is like Urban Meyer won a national championship with Florida and was slighted and called a bad coach because Tim Tebow didn't have an NFL throwing motion. And the argument became, well, his job's to win national championships. And he did that. His job isn't to get Tim 
Tim Tebow ready for the league. But uh, I think as a club coach, it kind of is your job to win like provincial tournaments and, and compete at nationals, but it's also your job to get the players ready for post-secondary, right? So have you ever fought that balance where maybe a kid has to play a different position or maybe they don't get to do certain things that their, their university or college coach is going to let them do that, you know, they have a different role on your team or how do you find that balance of like, we're going to win, but we're also going to like develop and get players ready for the next level. Great question. I think it's, it's something that's almost impossible to answer what that, that true measure of success is, right? Because like you said, if you, if you just look at it and you're like, yeah, that team wins club every year, but they're, players never go on to have any success at the next level, right? Um, were they doing it the right way, I guess? But who who is defining what the right way is, right? And that's what makes it really difficult. And uh, I spoke to Ben Josephson about this one time and, you know, trying to kind of get his opinion on it. And Ben and I, we used to go back and forth. Ben is like, it's great because they're two hours ahead of us um, in BC, right? And Mike Hawkins and Kerry McDonald, like all three of those guys with them being in BC, knowing that I'm usually up pretty late and just looking at my uh, phone and being like, okay, if it's, you know, one o'clock here, it's only 11 there. Like they'll still be up. Right. So it's great to just be able to bounce this ideas off of them. But Ben made the great point of like, okay, but if, if we're developing players for the next level, like who are we to say that we know what the next level requires, right? Like I could be a great club coach and I think this is what the university coach wants. But if I send them to a program that, they don't play that way, are they going to have that success, right? So you can get into your own head about that and you can start spinning circles and go on forever about like where, like chicken or the egg, a little bit of like, hey, who am I really trying to do this for? Um, but I think it's an example of like, for example, there was a team years ago where they had, they played like not a 5-1, not a they played a 1-5, you know, like 14U, where they basically had five kids digging with one kid spiking and blocking, you know, and everybody just like fed him the ball and he was their monster and they won 14 U nationals. Right. So it's like, yeah, congratulations. You're the best 14 U team in the country. You won nationals, but what did you really teach the players? Right? Like how is this going to translate to the next level? So by the time they get to 15 U, where even just that one year later, teams can now do things to adjust to that. They weren't as good. Right. And they had to play a different style. So, um, if, if you feel like you're, you have enough intelligence and information and experience and like you're reaching out to university coaches and you're watching the game at that level and you're developing them and you're trying to play the way that, that you see the game being played at that level and you're still having success with your team and then you're seeing those players go on to have that, that success at the university level, then I think you're doing the right thing. Um, but that's, that's a huge measure for me. Like honestly, when I say how do you, how do you measure success in your club? knowing that we've had these guys consistently year after year who who go to programs and whether or not they become star players, I think the big thing is that they're finding that there isn't a huge adjustment to the next level, right? And I think that's the big thing. So kind of setting that bar for them when they come into the club of, hey, this is the expectation level, right? Like if you want to get to that level, if you want to be a university player, like this is what is required to, to do that. So like we do a lot of strength and conditioning in our club and it's, it's not optional. Like it's part of the program. You know, it's something that there are, there are university teams probably doing less strength and conditioning than what our club guys are doing. Right. And just, again, that part of like the culture and, and wearing the gear and like being there on time and how to travel and like all these little things that you learn in university if they're getting it now when they're starting, when they're like 14, 15, it becomes second nature at 18. So when they go to university, there's, there isn't this huge culture shock. And 
I think there are a lot of kids who come from certain clubs who um, just don't get that same experience. And then they go somewhere, they move away from home, they go to university, and it's just completely overwhelming. And even though they might have the skill to succeed at the next level, they they just aren't able to handle the, the program and the commitment of what's required. And, um, you know, that that's the big thing for us. But the kind of the second part, I guess, of playing out a position is, you know, that's always the, the hard part, right, is you, you, you do want to have success, but you want to develop some of these guys long term as well. So you have that. It's pretty common, like at a club level where you have that six, three, six, four middle who's like a great, you know, a great middle, but he's not going to be a university middle. Right. And if he is, he's not going to be an impact one. But you see something in him that he could be a really good outside hitter, you know, and you see a guy that. He might not be as good for us this year, but if we make this change for him, you know, he will end up having a better career. And I think of all the players in our club, Adam Bianchier would be like our number one example of that. And I'm not sure how familiar you are with Adam. Um, played five years at U of M. He's, I think the teams play so many games now that a lot of these like records get broken all the time. But he's probably top 10 in Canada Western kills uh, all time now. Um, for sure, one of the best, if not the highest at U of M history. And he was like an amazing, unstoppable middle at 15 years and 16 years. You know, like the guy was unbelievable. He had such a good wrist and he was so fast, but he was never going to be a university middle, right? So made the decision to kind of move him outside and the team wasn't as good because of it, but his career definitely benefited because of that decision. So, Yeah, it's funny. I, I just looked up Adam because that name did sound familiar. I think I tried to invite him to beach tryouts one year because him and a partner came out to Toronto and played in beach nationals and I thought he was just so athletic and moved so well. And uh, unfortunately it's hard to get some, some Winnipeg guys to beach nationals every, or to beach tryouts every once in a while. But uh, if he's listening or you have a connection, he's always welcome to come try out again. Cause I think that guy can yeah. play. So Adam played with, he was probably playing with Dusty Spiring. I don't know if that name sounds familiar too, but, but Dusty played, he played two or four and they both coached with us for years and, and uh, both by U of M and they, they're, I've watched them. I don't, I'm not an expert on the beach by any stretch, but they, they ran a tournament last year and they kind of put it on. They did a grand beach, which is kind of like the big, that's where Garth's cabin is. It's kind of the big spot in, uh, in Manitoba. And they put on August long weekend and, you know, they ended up winning the tournament and I had never really seen them play beach before, but, um, they were really good. And I just thought like, these are guys, and there's a long list of guys who probably would be in the same boat who, if they grew up in Toronto or Vancouver, you know, would probably, have had would had a career you know in uh in beach volleyball and like i look at uh, i'm sure you know adam thompson right? mm-hmm. who, yep. uh, i don't know if you've coached him or you know anything directly but like adam played 204 his first year right um so 2010 it was our first year he played on our very first 18 u team and i was shocked at the time that he got to go play at windsor like i remember thinking like wow that's awesome because he he was okay for us like he started for us but i just what, I was surprised that somebody, you know, would, would give him a chance kind of thing, but he had enough size and he was raw enough and you know, he did well, but then he got into the beach stuff and I was like, wow, this guy's really, you know, really committing to it. That's great. But like watching him play in that tournament, um, against Adam Junker, like to me, like Junker was leagues better than Adam Thompson. Right. And that's no, no slight to Adam Thompson. It was just like Adam, I could just see that he was better. Um, but just, didn't have the ability to commit to the beach stuff all the way through. Whereas again, if Adam Thompson doesn't go play at Windsor, he probably doesn't get into beach either. Right. Like it was just that the circumstance of that geography and that, that led to that decision for him. So, um, yeah, it's tough. We have a pretty short, 
pretty short cultivation season here, right? To be playing beach, like to get kids hooked into it. We don't have as long of a, of a year to play. So it's tough. Definitely. Definitely. And I just want to circle back to one of your earlier points because it, it sounds like you guys really value accountability. And I'm wondering where you've, you've found the balance of like the art of coaching there. Cause it, it's one thing to have all these rules and maybe treat the athletes like robots and say, Oh, at Tuesday's practice, you wear your red t-shirt and you put your bag down here. But to me, that doesn't actually teach accountability. That's just coach harping on them to do certain things. And it's almost like a drill sergeant where you mentioned the value is that when they go to their, their university or their college team, they know how to lift, they know how to like eat properly. They know how to take care of themselves. They know how to activate before practice, like all the little details that go into it. Right. So how do you guys phase that in? Like, is that something that you're really hard on them in like 14 you and 15 you, and then by 18 you, they kind of get it or, or where does the art of coaching come in for you where it's something they understand and they value and therefore they do it versus oh, this is coach. And he's, he's a bit hard on us and he has these weird rules. Like how do they get them to value it and see the purpose of it? In the beginning, it's absolutely a process where they think that I'm just doing this for my benefit, right? I think it takes time, and the key is is sitting them down and explaining, you know, why that why that is, right? And a lot of kids, I think, probably ninety percent of them, they don't know what they're doing, right? They just grab a shirt, they grab a bag, they grab a pair of socks, and off they go to practice. And you know, there isn't much that goes into it. And that thoughtfulness and that mindfulness of like, okay, why am I doing this today? What does this mean? And, you know, it's for us, it's such a huge part of just the culture of our gym where I always want where somebody walks in, uh, they know where they are, right? They know they're at a 204 practice. They know like when we go to nationals, if all of our kids look exactly the same, you know, part of it is, is being part of that something bigger, you know, and being part of a large group. But also there is some... hundred percent, there's some intimidation to it. Right. And just that professionalism that goes into it where it's like, we're here, right. You see that we're here and you know, we're, we're taking over. Like that was kind of the, the vision for us in the beginning of our colors are very loud. You know, we have kind of the, the cardinal and gold and it's not like just your typical kind of blending into everybody else looking the same. We've certainly sort of push those boundaries a little bit of, of what we look like when we play on the court. And that's all by design is we want, we want to be that way, you know? And, um, for us, it's just, again, that bigger picture of teaching them like, Hey, when you're part of something, these are the expectations and this is what we, we want from you. And we're not going to be any different than any other team, you know? And if you're going to a program that, that doesn't value that, you know, you're probably you're probably not going to be somewhere where you're going to be pushed and you're probably not going to be somewhere where you're going to be happy. If you're a really top player, you know, this is the expectations of all of those programs. So we want you to have that seamless transition when you leave our program. If anything, maybe maybe some of the coaches, you know, aren't quite as strict on it. And then you're thinking, wow, this is great because, you know, I was prepared for something and, and there's nothing that is harder than what I thought it was going to be. You know, so and it helps to have so many of our players who've come back now after playing university and have come back to coach and they can say, Hey, I went through this club. And when I was here, I didn't understand it at the time. You know, like I, I got it, but I didn't really fully, I didn't really fully get it. And it was coach explained to me and I, I bought in because, you know, I understood what the club wants. But then when I went to university right away, it dawned on me, you know, how much this helped me because I saw all this and I learned all this and it wasn't this huge culture shock. And that really helps because now it's a former player coming to them and talking to them as a player, not just a coach who, you know, you think is out of touch and doesn't know what what's going on. Right. So unfortunately, I don't know if this is kind of a curse and a blessing, I guess. But like I 
I am unrelenting when it comes to this stuff, right? Like I, I don't get tired of talking to the guys about it. Like if it's 10 practices in a row of me having to tell you something, uh, whether, and it's not, not just like a volleyball thing, but just part of our culture. Like I will never let up on it. I notice it. I've been blessed with this gift of, um, you know, being able to see these things and, and having this ability. I, I joke that I maybe should have been a detective in another life because I noticed these things so quickly. And, um, you know, the kids, like they just think that I'm crazy, you know, and some of the examples I could tell you of like kids, it almost becomes a game, you know, in a way where it's like, I'm going to see what I can get away with. You know, that's how I feel about it. And I kind of just treat it that same way. It's like, all right, game on then. You know, like you want to, you want to wear that shirt that doesn't have a logo. Like I'm going to find you, you know, you don't want to bring your tool for a backpack. I'm going to find you, you know, and I actively almost kind of search it out which probably sounds a little bit crazy, but that's how committed to the cause that, that I want these guys to be, you know, and that's what it takes. If you really want to have that culture, you have to be committed to it. So uh, I've always been prepared for that. And I know some of our coaches think I'm a little bit crazy too, but they certainly, they support me in it because they know how important it is to the club. Well, I'm glad you mentioned the mindfulness piece and not just like your OCD or that you want to wear red on Tuesdays or whatever, because uh, I know with some of our beach guys, like we require them to wear heart rate monitors and there's a lot of data and a lot of monitoring that goes on. But but about once a week, I'll have an athlete really grind my gears and try to test me and be like, coach, how does this help me side out? Like, how does me wearing this disc help me? And I'm just like, guys, like there's a bigger picture here. And I, and I know coaching club that the guys would definitely push your buttons, but it's glad you guys have a, a clear objective and a reason why. And it's not just you losing your mind about a certain shirt or something like that. <laughs> No, it's uh, probably the athlete who I never actually directly coached. Um, he was always in our club. I helped out a little bit when he was 13U. He played for us all the way through. But uh, Gerard Murray Jr., who is now at UBC and is one of the middles at UBC, and he spent some time um, in Gatineau in the center there a couple of years ago. Uh, he, I, I think he enjoyed it. I think he actually like he found it fun to see what he could do that would that would get to me, you know and. Dan Lothar, who was coaching at the time, was just like, man, like, you got to let it go. Like, he's, he's just going to drive you insane. I'm like, no, but I, I refuse to let him win. You know, like, I refuse to give up on this. And he would, he would bring a different backpack just to see if I would notice. You know, so I started, and this, again, will sound nuts, but I would hide his backpack. You know, I'd, I'd go find it. I'd go to the practice because we'd be on the other side of the gym. I'd be coaching at one of our other teams. And I'd see that he had this other bag there. And I'd just grab it and I'd go like put it under my bag, you know, so he'd have to kind of say, hey, I couldn't uh, I can't find my backpack. And I'd be like, oh, like, what is it? What does it look like? You know, because obviously it's going to look just like everyone else's. Right. And uh, kind of go through that process and say, like, oh, Gerard, are you number six? Maybe the other number six on the other team grabbed your bag by accident. You know, and then he'd have to admit that, oh, no, I just brought my Patagonia backpack or whatever it may be. Right. And, uh, by the end of it, you know, it was like this fun little respect and understanding that we had, but I think he, he finally got it. And now that he's at UBC, I think he's kind of put some things together and he's a great, uh, a great player that I wish, wish the best. So nice, nice. And then just to jump ahead once more in your career, uh, you got to be a part of team Canada and you were with our, with our youth national team. And I think, uh, Friends of the show would recognize Matt Harris and Ian Ebbett and some other guys, and I'd love to get Hawkins on the show and obviously Kerry McDonald, but uh, Colin Walker, I believe he coached with as well, like a pretty good crew of coaches that I just love to sit down and have lunch with, right? Like, how, how was that experience? How did you get into the program? And then what did you feel like you got out of it just coaching at that level? Amazing experience. And I, I can't really say that it was um, something that was like a goal of mine. You know, officially, it's not like I would say that 
it's something I always wanted to do. I mean, I guess I was aware of it, but I wasn't really actively pursuing that opportunity. And um, Kerry McDonald, who is just like an amazing guy. I can't say enough good stuff about Kerry. He's super smart. Uh, but at the end of the day, he's just like a really good guy. You know, he's just really, he's just a cool guy. You know, there's not many guys that would just like take a longboard to work, you know, and, and uh, just like he can be the guy who's breaking down all this science to you. And then at the same time, explaining to you like the tiny desk concert, the roots just played, you know, like it's this crazy dynamic that he has, but got to know Carrie a little bit just through, you know, the scene. And, um, we used to have where we'd like get together whenever coaches would come to Winnipeg, I'd like meet up with them for lunch, you know, or like go grab dinner and just sort of catch up on how things were going with volleyball and how their season was going and just kind of hang out really more than anything. And I remember we were, uh, in Winnipeg. So they were doing, they must've been here for playoffs. I think it was with UBC. And he mentioned to me this, that he had got this uh, youth selects opportunity that was going to be at UBC that summer. So this was 2017 and, you know, just asked if I maybe would like to be involved in kind of like a, like a manager role type thing, because they'd already kind of, I, I had missed the official application. Right. So he's like, yeah, if you want to come out, like we can, we can get you involved. And um, so I basically, jumped to this opportunity, went out to UBC and uh, trained with the guys and learned so much like in this short little time. And it was just great to see like these kids, they were like, I, I say kids because it was the selects team. So they were going into grade 11. So like 16 new athletes and they were capable of doing so many incredible things, but also did so many things wrong at the same time, which is the really neat dynamic to this. It's like we have these left sides who can, you know, we're touching like high 11s, but then they can go and just, you know, make three or four completely brain dead mistakes at the same time. Right. And, um, so that was a great opportunity for me. We went to Fort Lauderdale, we played against, like, we didn't really have a lot of teams who were our age, kind of that youth selects age. So we didn't do great as far as a results uh, standpoint. And I just remember thinking like, I want to do this every single year. You know, this is something that I can picture myself giving up a couple of weeks every summer to be involved in this program and learn and then bring that information back. And I took so much from that too. Like I, a ton of what I've been doing the last few years in coaching has come from that, you know, those summers. So when the opportunity came up again, the next year I applied this time, you know, it went through kind of the official process and, um, thought that, you know, this was be, I did, I did really well, you know, I felt really confident and I, and I didn't get the position and I thought just like, wow, like that, that sucks. You know, like that's kind of a bummer. And then I looked at who all the coaches were who got the jobs and every single coach that year was a U sport coach, you know, and I looked at it and said, okay, well, um, this is a situation where these six guys are all, you know, U sport head coaches or assistant coaches. Like they deserve, they deserve it more than I do, you know? And I, and I, I really wasn't offended by it. I wasn't upset by it. I just thought, okay, I'll apply again another summer and see if I can get, get involved. So then the following year when Matt was the head coach, I applied again and I got the uh, position that next year. And I think that's where kind of going back now, I guess that's 2019. I, I feel like I've really kind of built a nice role for myself kind of in this youth volleyball kind of team Canada sort of thing in the summer where, um, you know, kind of a manager, but also sort of on court at the same time, but a guy who can handle a lot of those sort of organizational things that the coaches typically don't want to do, you know, and that aren't really, the forte of a lot of coaches, you know, they're, they are there to be the guy who's running the, the team. And I felt like I was there kind of behind the scenes and a lot of that stuff. So we kind of joked, like I was, uh, I was the cleaner, you know, like whenever things would go wrong, I was the guy you would call to, to fix it. And mistakenly, 
Um, because I'm bald, the guys thought the kids and the team thought they were calling me Mr. Clean, which is not <laughs> quite as sweet of a nickname, I guess. The, the, the cleaner, the cleaner is like definitely like badass, you know. Like I think of like in a movie, you know, like you call in a cleaner, like the fixer, like you know, Pulp Fiction, like you're gonna call these guys. Call the wolf. Get, yeah, like um, is it Walter Wolf? Is that the name in Pulp Fiction? I right, Harvey so. Keitel. Um, you know, like I'm gonna come in, I'm gonna get things done, right? And it's like the things that nobody else wants to do. And, um, I think just from running the club for all those years, like I have so much experience doing that, that I loved it. And the opportunity to then also be on court at the same time, like I, I was at every practice I was on the bench, you know, but it was just those times away where I had to be the guy like that summer I had to drive. We were, we were at the Pan Am center in Scarborough. That's where we were based with Matt and Ian and Mike. And I had to drive to like four different staples and argue with like employee after employee about getting these name things, these tags that Ian, you know, Ian is a big part of Ian's culture building, right? Is the tags, the bag tags. So I was tasked with this process. and like, I have no idea what I'm doing, right? I've never laminated anything or all this stuff. So I'm going to staples after staples and I'm arguing with these people. And I don't have a ton of patience when things don't go my way sometimes. So I'll say sometimes, uh, which probably means a lot of the time, but I'm driving all over the place and they're texting me like, where are you? I'm like, I don't know. Like I'm in, I don't even remember the communities. Like maybe you would know what's around Scarborough better than me, but I feel like I was driving to all these places that I've heard of never really knew where they were, but I knew they had club volleyball teams. And then finally I found it and it's like 35 degrees, you know, in Toronto at the time. And I get back and I miss like one of our team building sessions because I was doing all this stuff. And the guys like, you know, they didn't even notice, right? Like they're just like, they're in their own world, which is fine. And just like an example of the cleaner, just having to be there to do, to do all this work. Right. And, um, we went to Fort Lauderdale again with that team, which was, which was great. And I have a good story about that later. We can end with at the end. Um, and then again, last year I was involved, which was the, the virtual training program, which was another great experience. Um, that was, uh, making the best of a bad situation, I guess you could say. And I think the players really enjoyed it. I'm glad we were able to provide something for them when we couldn't be on court. And I've applied again for this summer and we're hoping to, uh, we'll see what happens, I guess, if I get the position, but I'd love to be involved again because it looks like there's plans to be on court in Vancouver in, uh, in July, if we can make it work. So, um, ton of pride to be involved in that. And, you know, again, I think there are I know for sure that there are so many coaches out there in the country who are who are worthy of being involved in those programs and just might not from a time commitment standpoint or the time of the year, you know, all those things like I, I'm able to, to get away in the summer and, and make that commitment. So it works for me. And I'm just I'm really, truly like just grateful and blessed that I've had those opportunities because I, I really enjoy it. Amazing. Amazing. Yeah. I'm just looking at the clock and I promise you an hour and we are way over that, but I am enjoying the conversation, but I think we'll just have to have you back on the show again instead of making your first episode three hours, but uh, you just hinted at it and and you're no exception. I mean, everyone who's involved in our sport seems to have a funny or unique story because volleyball is awesome and it's a high performance sport, but man, some crazy or odd stuff seems to happen along the way. So yeah, just uh, you hinted at it there. Share us a, a funny story to give us a laugh before we let you go. Sure. If, if it's okay with you, I'm going to tell you two. Uh, I thought of two really good ones, and I think they're of two different uh, two different times of my life in coaching. So, the first one was when I was uh, my first year at U of M. So, 2004, we had just basically it actually still might have been yeah the very beginning of the season, like maybe second or third week of the season, and we were supposed to play Regina, and um, we were only playing the men. The women weren't coming with us. Normally, we take like a bus out there, so it was already going to kind of be this weird trip. 
And that week, earlier in the week, uh, Garth's father passed away. So, you know, super upsetting. Garth uh, was unexpected and we didn't have any other coaches. And he basically like reveals to the team at the time that, you know, I'm going to be head coaching the team on the Saturday night. You know, like he, he didn't give me any warning. I knew nothing about this. It was just like breaking news, basically, like right then and there. And, uh, you know, felt so bad for Garth. Like he kind of had to come into practice and, and tell the guys this. So he made the trip out on the Friday. He flew out. And we like waxed Regina, like it was not even close, you know, and um, three straight. And I remember just thinking like, okay, you know, I knew they weren't like one of the best teams, but I feel pretty confident about like getting to head coach a university team. I'm, I'm 19 years old um, coaching this team. We're ranked number one in the country. Like this will be, this will be easy. So we show up the next night and I think they were kind of aware of the situation, the referees and the guy comes up to me and he tells me like, okay, this is a lineup card. This is how you fill it in. And if you want to call a timeout, you put your hands together in a T like, Oh boy. Like I've, like I know the sport, I kind of, but you don't want to be a jerk back, but I'm kind of thinking, okay, no problem. So we go out there and we get pumped the first two sets, like Regina rolls us without any effort. And we're playing so bad. And I remember thinking, like, ah, when we get back to Winnipeg, like, Garth's going to fire me. Like, I'm not going to be allowed to come to practice. Garth has never lost to Regina in his whole career at U of M. He's like 100 0 or something. Like, this is this is terrible. We can't we can't lose. Like, I'm I'm going to be in so much trouble. So I'm just telling the guys in between the second and third set, like, hey guys, you know, we beat them three straight last night. We can beat them three straight tonight, you know, and it's going to be easier because the fifth set's only to 15. So we, we technically don't have to win as many points, you know, and it seemed like so simple. And the guys kind of like dawned on them like, yeah, you're right. You're right. We, we can beat them. So we go out and we win 12, 15, maybe, you know, in the third and fourth sets, we go to five and um, things are really going well. But at the end of the fourth set, Murray Laidlaw, who I don't know if you know Murray at all, um, Murray's a bit of a volleyball legend. He's one of these guys that like everybody knows Murray somehow. Um, but he's a Prince George guy. He played at Grand Prairie. He was at U of M and he came back that year. He punched a guy through the net in the fourth <laughs> set, like through the square of the net and um, straight through the square of the net. Like, I don't even know how he fit his hand through perfectly without touching the net, but right in the chest. And this guy had played at Grand Prairie. And was dating Murray's ex-girlfriend. I guess there was some tension there. Some comments maybe were made, you know, um, kind of to Murray. So Murray gets a card, obviously, and he comes off. And I'm like, we have all the momentum. I'm just like, Murray, like, what? What are you doing? He's like, oh, yeah, blew that one. Sorry, sorry. It's like, what are you going to say, right? Like, okay. So he only had to sit off the fourth set. He was allowed to come back for the fifth set. But this <laughs> definitely got Regina going. So before you know it, we are down 14-3 in the fifth set to Regina. And all my hopes and dreams of like retiring with a perfect winning record of a head coach at, at that time with CIS, like these are going down the tubes. And uh, Tone Van Langfeld was one of our best players that year, spent a lot of time with the national team and he was in his second year and he had a terrible game. He'd probably missed about 10, 10 serves. And he looks at me, we side out for 14, four and he looks at me and he's like, should I just float it in? Like, I don't want to miss a serve to lose. And I remember I'm just thinking like, yeah, whatever Tone. Like I, at this point, like I, I'm just so worried about what Garth's going to say. So Tone goes back, float serves, standing float serves. We go up 15, 14. <laughs> yeah. And I'm thinking now like, okay, here we go, Regina. They've called two timeouts. They're calling subs. They got their front row setter. You know, he's really small. We're just running everything over top of this guy. They can't side out. Like they're making mistake after mistake after mistake. And uh, we're going to win. Like, we're going to have this comeback of all comebacks. And this is going to be a great story. 
So we serve again. They uh, over bump or something. We get a swing for the win. Josh Clausen, you know, great player, one on one gets slammed by their five nine setter. Right. So now it's fifteen fifteen. They score another point, and then we can't side out, and they're opposite. This 50-year guy hits a ball off Josh's block into the stands. They win 17-15. They flood the court, right? Like, they, they've just won the national championship. Like, they're going crazy. Our guys are so disgusted and disappointed. Like, I can't believe this just happened. I am mortified. Like, this, I'll never, ever live, live this down. This is just the worst thing that could ever happen to me. Um, we drive back to Winnipeg, you know, Garth, he just kind of asks, like, what happened? I explain. He's just like, okay, that's okay. Nothing we can do about it. We go the next weekend back to Saskatoon. We beat Saskatchewan both nights in in, uh, in Saskatoon, and that put us back kind of on level where we should have been. And then we moved on to the season. But the boys will certainly bring that up every once in a while, just, uh, you know, how the Cougs got the best of me there in Regina that night. So that's the first one. Uh, the second one is a bit more, has really nothing to do with volleyball, but it happened on a trip. So when we were in Fort Lauderdale, um, this is honestly the, the craziest scenario I've ever been a part of in coaching. And I still can't believe to this day that this happened. But we were at the USHPs and we played our first game. We won. We went to uh, Panera for lunch after, which is like just down the street. And at these USHPs, like they give all the teams these meal vouchers, right? So everybody's going to like different places, but you're going to have so many teams in one place at one time. And we're sitting there having lunch and this girls team comes in and tells the guys on our team like something about, oh, did you guys win today? And we're like, yeah, yeah, we won. And they're like, oh, that's good because the tournament's canceled. And everyone's just like, what? Like the tournament's canceled? Like, no, it's not canceled. We just played. They're like, no, no, we, we were just playing our first game. And yeah, there's no water, like something like the water wasn't working. So they sent everybody home. And everyone's just looking at each other like what are you talking about like the water fountains weren't working like they wouldn't cancel a tournament because the water fountains aren't working and we have no details of what's going on we're trying to get a hold of people i'm texting the girl from usa volleyball we're texting uh donna sales back like she was in back in bc she's kind of like the program coordinator we're not getting any information we have no idea what to think we're like literally on an island here with without any information so we go back to the facility which is just a bit of a walk down the street and like, yeah, like the tournament had been shut down. So there was a water main break in Fort Lauderdale, which basically like shut down the entire city, like not just the volleyball, but the whole city, like every like Panera, when we're, when we're leaving Panera, they're like, OK, everybody has to leave. Like we can't we can't serve any more food. Uh, like the whole city is just going nuts. Right. And it's middle of July. It's I don't know, 40 degrees. Like it's insanely hot. We have no water. We can't shower. We can't brush our teeth. Um we go to the grocery store and it's like, you know, it was a bit of like a, a precursor to sort of when everybody was snatching up everything at the beginning of the pandemic where like everyone's buying, you know, 30 cases of bottled water. Like there's all this stuff's going on. We're hearing from other teams like, yeah, we have to switch hotels. Um, we're going to fly home. Like we have no, we just played one game with this tournament. We're supposed to be there for like another week, right? It's a long tournament. So we go back to our hotel and we're trying to talk to this guy, like get information. We can't go to the bathroom because they can't flush the toilets. Like all this stuff is just nuts. So we're waiting for information, waiting for information. And we really don't know anything. So everyone's just kind of hanging out. We eventually get sent to like their sister property in Boca Raton. So um, when I think of like Boca Raton, I think of like Del Boca Vista on Seinfeld, right? <laughs> like I have no idea where we're headed, but we load up on this bus and we go to Boca Raton and we go to this, like, all we have is the address. We don't really know where we're going, um, but the bus is taking us there. So just whatever happens, happens. 
Oh, actually, for that one, we were on uh, we were on these rental vans. That's right. And the driver didn't really speak English properly. Like we weren't really getting a lot of information. We pull up to this like resort, the gated community, and I'm saying like, okay, like this can't be it. Like this is not their system. The hotel we were staying at in Fort Lauderdale was was not anything special. It was just your regular run of the mill hotel. And we pull up to this Scarface looking place. Like I think we're in the middle of Columbia. Like in this hotel. Like it is the design of this hotel. It is not. We are not in Florida. Like this is. I don't know where we are, but this place is exotic. It's got to be a couple grand a night to stay here. Like this place is out of this world. So we pull up and we get out and this is it. Like this is the hotel that they've arranged for us to be in. So we go to the front desk and we're just telling them like how many rooms we had. And we have no idea how much like, do we have to pay for this. Like who, how do we do this? Like nobody really has any details. And they're just like, how many rooms do you guys need? We're like, well, we had five at the other hotel, but maybe like, could we get eight? He's like, yeah, yeah, sure. You guys can get eight hotel rooms. We're like, all right, eight hotel rooms. So <laughs> we're getting extra rooms. Guys are getting their own beds now. Guys are getting their own rooms. Like we have no idea what's happening, right? And we have no information about the tournament. We don't know where we're supposed to eat because all of our meals are supposed to be provided for us. Um, so then USA Volleyball is just like, yeah, you guys can just buy whatever you want for dinner. Like we'll just comp it. So the only place we could eat this whole thing, we ended up just ordering pizza, which is literally like the least exciting thing you could do, but it worked out. But the next morning we are um, supposed to have breakfast and we're trying to arrange with the guy like, okay, we have a continental breakfast at our hotel, which is basically like probably yogurt and, you know, granola and maybe like an orange, you know, at the hotel that we're at. And the guy's like, okay, well, we have this really, um, you know, this amazing brunch kind of buffet with an omelet bar. And, uh, you, know, you guys can, you can have that. We're like, okay, well, how much does that cost? Like, do we have to pay for it? And they're like, well, it's 95 bucks a person. Uh, like, okay, well, we don't really have the budget. Like we probably have 95 bucks for like our 15 people. We can't really do that. And the guy just says, oh, don't worry about it. Like you guys just eat there. We'll figure it out later. So here we are like the next morning we're having this custom breakfast. There's like multi-million dollar yachts, like in the dock behind uh, this hotel, um, it's just mind blowing, like the experience that we're having. And then we just hop back on this bus at eight in the morning and it takes us right to the hotel and we just continue on at the tournament and there just wasn't any water for three days and we just played. <laughs> yeah. And that's basically it. Like, that's just kind of how it went. We never, we never heard like, are we, did somebody somewhere down the road get this bill for this breakfast that was you know, was, wasn't supposed to be had. Like we don't, we never heard anything about it again. So I guess it was all cool, but, um, Probably will never stay. It was a it was a Waldorf Astoria hotel. So I mean that just sounds fancy, right? I mean to me when you say those two things, it just sounds like it's going to be expensive. And I remember looking up later like how much it would cost to stay there, and it was it was not cheap. That's for sure. I don't remember the exact amount, but it was it was pretty pricey. So how thrilling for the athletes, right? To be like, oh, I'm on the national team, and now I'm kicked out of this tournament. There's no water, and it does a complete 180. And now it's like you're in the show, and you're staying at this place, and you're eating these meals, like. Man, what a weird chain of events just for a volleyball tournament. Oh, no kidding. Like it was uh, one of those things that you're just like you're not you're not happy it happened. But man, to look back on it and just say like the way it worked out, like to have that experience, it was just for one night. Right. But to have that experience with uh, at that hotel and all the guys to see that it was uh, it was pretty darn cool. So. Well, Jared, this has been awesome. I want to thank you for coming on the show. I think uh, if I didn't start a podcast, I don't know if I would get access to amazing coaches like you. So it was great to hear your story. And we'll have to get you back on because I feel like we 
we dipped our toe in a lot of subjects, but I feel like there's a lot more to come. So thanks for sharing all that you did today. And like I said, uh, we'll, we'll let you get some more coaching under your belt when uh, COVID ends and we'll look forward to some more stories. Absolutely. I, I really appreciate it. And I think uh, over the pandemic, something that I have uh, gained a large uh, appreciation for our podcast. And I find I listen to them all the time when I go walking and I think uh, for volleyball, you know, we're always fighting that battle of just uh, everybody loves the sport, you know, Olympic time. And you, when it gets the coverage, people absolutely love it. They think it's really exciting. We're just always kind of trying to fight tooth and nail for every little bit of coverage that we uh, we can get. So I think that it's awesome to have a podcast and can uh, share some stories and some experiences of so many great people that I know that are in our sport. And I really appreciate uh, you having me on today. Well, thanks, man. Thanks for saying that. And yeah, I'm sure we'll talk soon. Absolutely. Thanks very much, Josh.